I'm a, a theologian by trade. I've been uh, studying the last few years of my life and just finished in, in August. And so here I am at the crossroads of my life, waiting to see what God has in store next. Uh, I've been here before. It's never comfortable. But, uh, but here we are again. And I trust that, you know, God has always surprised me with stuff that's better than I thought it would be. And I know that's not the way it, it always is and always will be. But I believe that God is always good. Amen. So here, here we are at the cross. A, a piece of advice for you, church. When you come up to that fork in the road, whatever you do, do not pick it up and use it to eat your lunch. All right? Bad idea. Just let it lie. Uh, yeah, I know it's a lame joke, but oh well. <laughs> Worked the first time. <laughs> All right. Um, so here, we, as we live through life, we will often be confronted with that metaphorical fork in the road. You know, when when we're confronted with decisions, and and this happens often. And we will often be confronted with the choice between two paths. The, the easy road that most of the world travels down and what Jesus calls the narrow road, the hard road that he has called us to. And the fact is, Jesus did not promise his disciples a life of ease and luxury. In fact, he promised us that in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have difficulties. But be of good cheer, he says, for I have overcome the world. And this is how we live. So I I want us to have a look at the book of Job today. And as you make your way there to Job, it is just left of the Psalms. You can't miss the Psalms. Okay, maybe you can, but it's near the middle of your book, and then turn left. Uh, there are, uh, scholars tell us that there are, Job chapter 1, there are two different kinds of wisdom literature that we have in the Bible. Uh, and what we have in the first five, what we have in the book of Proverbs, for instance, is, is conventional wisdom. It's, it's kind of a, a how-to live your life uh, type of manual. If you obey God, you will be blessed. If you fear the Lord, you will be blessed. And if you disobey, you'll be cursed. This is from Deuteronomy, of course. And then there's the other kind of literature that is more critical, more speculative. We're wrestling with the mysteries of God and, and of life. And and so Psalm 1 tells us, if you if you fear, uh, that blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. When you obey God, you will be blessed. And then most of the rest of the book of Psalms tells us it's not working. 
Have you noticed that? There are more lament psalms than anything else where the psalmist says, God, it's not working. What's going on? I am righteous. I am living a good life here and I'm missing out on the blessings. Well, here in Job chapter 1, from 1 to 5, we have, uh, we have the first kind of wisdom, this conventional, practical kind of wisdom. And we're told that Job was a blameless man upright, who fears God, who shuns evil, and, and God has blessed him. He's blessed him with seven sons and three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and so on and so forth. God has blessed Job with an abundance. He was righteous and he was blessed. And then it starts to unravel. And from Verse 6 on, we have a very different kind of wisdom literature. And we're confronted with the mysteries of life and of God. What Job is a righteous man, and yet he suffered. He suffered more than anyone else we see in the Bible. And perhaps with the exception of Christ himself. Job uh, 1.8. You know, in, in, in verse 6, uh, we have this, this scene set up. God is in heaven and he is having a meeting with the sons of God, whoever they may be. And here comes Satan. And he says, and, and God says, uh, Have you considered my servant Job? Verse 8, have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Did you notice that Job's troubles begin when God was bragging about him? When God was looking down and saying, have you seen my servant Job? This guy is amazing. He is blameless and upright. And Satan says, I want him. Let me put him to the test. Let's see what he's really made of. And I suspect that something similar was happening the night that Jesus was betrayed. When Jesus told Satan, or Jesus told Peter, Peter, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And there, there you is, is plural. He's saying, you disciples, Satan demands to sift you like wheat. He wants to put you to the test. He wants to make it hard for you. And they saw Jesus crucified. And most of them ran away. All of them ran away when he was arrested, when he was crucified. Only John the Apostle was there. Peter himself denied Jesus three times. He failed. They all failed miserably. They were put to the test and they failed. I wonder, in those times, and I don't really know this, but I I suspect that sometimes God looks down on you and he starts bragging. You ever think about that? Look at at 
Peter, do you see my servant Peter? I'm, gonna, I'm going to put my spirit in him. I'm going to raise him up. And he's going to stand up on the day of Pentecost and preach. And 3,000 people are going to be saved. And I'm going to build my church. And it's going to swarm the world with the gospel. You wait and see. And, and, and Satan says, I want him. Does God ever brag about you? When you go through those hardships, when you are tested, and even when you fail, do you suppose sometimes it's because God is looking down and he says, there's Donovan, he's my son. You, you wait and see what I'm going to do with this guy. Right? You, you, just, you just wait and see. And, and Janelle, here, here's my daughter. You know, yeah, yeah, Satan is putting us through the loops right now, but wait until you see what I'm going to do with this woman, with this daughter of mine. Can you, can you just picture this happening? And, and I wonder if those are the times Satan comes along and he says, let me put him to the test for you. Let's see what he's really made of. Don't you wish sometimes that God would brag a little bit less about you? <laughs> and yet it's good isn't it he loves you you have a heavenly father who loves you who believes in you and he's bragging it up because he he just delights in you so job one uh, we read on in verse nine and we see satan's answer and he says does job fear god for no reason have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Does Job fear God for nothing? Does he fear God for no reason. This is the key question around which this story turns. What will happen when his blessings are taken away? What is at the root of Job's righteousness? And when you strip it all away and he has no reason left to worship and to serve God, will he still serve God? That is the question. Uh, can we have the next slides, please? So, how about you? And how about me? Do you love God for nothing? Do you love God only for His benefits? Do you serve Him for your sake? Or do you serve God for His sake? When there's nothing to gain <clears throat> from serving Him, will you still serve Him? <clears throat> Joseph was another man. <clears throat> man's chief end, sorry, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And the other slide is from the American Declaration of Independence that says that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'll let you judge for yourself which of these two statements are truly Christian. 
which of these two statements are truly biblical in their view, in their worldview? Here's a hint. Only one of them is. (laughs) Are you made to glorify God or are you made to pursue happiness? Do we serve God for God's sake? Joseph loved God for God's sake. He dreamed of greatness when he was young. But as he was growing up, he was sold into slavery. And then as a slave, as a servant in Potiphar's house, he is falsely accused and then put in prison. And this is not the kind of eat your steak dinner, work out in the gym and and watch TV kind of, of prison. This is you will be deprived of your basic needs for as long as you are here. That kind of prison. It's a real prison. And Joseph had every reason to believe that these dreams that he had were not really from God or that God was not going to keep his word. He had every reason to believe that God had abandoned him and yet he was faithful. Joseph served God. He was the epitome of faithfulness. Romans 5, 3-5 used to be uh, just uh, one of my favorite scriptures quoted often. Uh, for we rejoice in the glory, for we rejoice in our sufferings, because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now we often misquote this, and we often say things like, "Suffering produces character." Do we ever say that? Did you know that suffering doesn't always produce character? sometimes suffering produces ugliness, doesn't it? Sometimes suffering produces raging from raging against God. Sometimes it produces abandoning our faith. And I've seen people do that. Suffering sometimes causes people to immerse themselves in sin and whatever it takes to make them feel good for just one moment suffering does not always produce character the key here is perseverance what does it mean to persevere what does it mean to suffer faithfully with a a a determined commitment to follow jesus christ no matter what it costs there was an evangelist named sammy tippett who worked uh in the in the 80s 70s and 80s in eastern europe and in the former soviet union and as he shared the gospel and, and preached the gospel among these very oppressed people he learned that as they would pray to receive christ they would say things like jesus i want to follow you no matter what it costs jesus i give my life to you no matter what it costs jesus i receive you as my savior no matter what it costs Because these people understood that there's a cost to following Jesus. And many of them would be tortured. Many of them would be put to death for their faith. But there's a cost to following Jesus. Will we serve God for God's sake? 
Life will put you to the test. People will put you to the test. And you will be faced with the choice, the, the decision. Will you first and foremost be committed to following Christ, to being faithful? Or will you first be committed to avoiding pain, to being comfortable? And that choice will be put to you again and again and again. Will I be obedient or will I be comfortable? And, and this can be big P persecution of, <clears throat> of death, torture, the loss of property, whatever it may be. It could be small P persecution of people mistreating you, gossiping about you, slandering you, speaking all kinds of evil against you for the sake of Christ just as he warned us. And whether big or small, you will have to choose between being comfortable and being faithful. Stephen was stoned for preaching the gospel. He was the first martyr. Peter and John healed a crippled man outside the temple and they were brought before the authorities. They were threatened and then they were commanded not to preach in the name of Jesus. The priests didn't like their working miracles. They, they had this theology about, about miracles being impossible and resurrection being impossible. And, and here they are preaching a resurrected Messiah and working miracles. And so they wanted to shut them up. And Peter said, whether it is right to obey you or to obey God, I'll let you decide. But as for us, we will continue to speak but what we have seen and heard. They chose to fear God rather than man. They chose to serve whatever the cost. And years later, Peter would be crucified upside down. John would be boiled in a vat of oil. Why? Because they were following Jesus. They chose to follow Jesus rather than to be free from pain. I was, uh, <clears throat> I was 24 years old, just out of Bible college, living with a roommate. And roommates have a way of finding all of your buttons and pressing on them, don't they? And I had a lot of buttons. I admit I still have a few. No, I don't really do. Carolina will tell you I don't, but <laughs> yes, I still have a few. I uh, and my roommate—I was new in town. My roommate invited a bunch of friends over, had a party. Oh, it's all good. Time to clean up at the end of the evening, and he he said some things to me that just rubbed me the wrong way, and I was mad. I was furious on the inside, and I decided, well, fine, you can do this by yourself. I'm going to my room and also saying to myself, I really need some time with the Lord right now. And so I did. And the Lord spoke to me and he showed me this. I was committed to being comfortable, to being free from pain. And 
Jesus was calling me to follow him. And when you're working with people, and especially when you're working with hurting people, when they will push their hurts your way. And in order to care for them, to serve them, to love them, you will have to be ready to absorb their pain. And I learned, I would have to, learn, I would have to absorb pain in order to care for this man. That's life. That's life in the world. That's life in the world as servants of Christ. This disciple makers. Well, we serve God unconditionally. Job one twelve. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in you is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice that Satan had to get permission from God in order to afflict Job? He had to get permission from God. In order to afflict you with suffering, Satan has to get either your permission or God's permission. And you know what your permission looks like when you sin and you open up your life to the enemy. All right, you bear the consequences of your sin. But there are times, as in this case, when you are living right and you still encounter suffering. When you're living right and hard things still come your way. God gave permission. Job himself said in verse 21, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I've heard people say, well, it's not really true because the Lord gave and Satan took away. Right? You heard that? This is Job speaking, and he could be wrong. Well, perhaps. But when we read the next verse, it says that in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. We cringe at the thought of of God taking away blessing, inflicting us with suffering. We cringe at the thought, but in saying that the Lord took away, Job did not charge God with wrong. Why? Because God is God and he is allowed to give and to take away whatever he chooses. He is God. Now, I know this is hard to take, Verse uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, and here we have the Lord speaking to Satan. 2, 3. Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. Blameless and upright. Fears God. Turns away from evil. Holds fast with integrity. Though you incited him. You incited me against him. Look at what God is saying in this passage. You incited me against him. To destroy him without reason. Who is against Job? God is. Who is destroying Job? God is. How? By opening the door and allowing Satan to afflict him. 
And there's, there's something really mysterious happening here. See, God and Satan are in a wager, and they are opponents. And, and yet, Satan is afflicting Job, and God is afflicting Job. They seem to be doing the same thing. And yet, in a very mysterious way, they are doing two very different things. Satan is seeking to destroy Job's integrity. He is seeking to destroy Job's faith. God is working this story to bring it to a happy ending where Job's faith is established stronger than ever before, where Job's integrity is established more deeply than ever before. They are doing two opposite things, and yet both afflicting Job with suffering. And when we come to the end, we see that. Now, how did, what, what did Satan do with permission? What did Satan do with God's permission to afflict Job? Well, he killed all of his children. In, and then on the same day, as you know, he took away all of his property, all of his sheep, all of his cattle, all of his camels. He lost it all in one day. And then he afflicted Job with all kinds of sores and wounds and boils and ugly bodily things that you don't want to think about and then left him his wife satan took away everything job had and then left his wife there have you ever thought about that curse god and die You've heard it said that Mrs. Noah was the greatest woman, the greatest wife in the Bible because Noah preached for a hundred years without a single convert and she stayed with him. (laughs) That's the best. Well, if Mrs. Noah was the best wife in the Bible, Mrs. Job was the absolute worst. Curse God and die. Does it strike you as, well, not very sound advice? When, when you're in the ring, face to face, boxing with this, this guy who is ten times bigger than you, ten times stronger than you, ten times faster than you, ten times more skilled than you are, and you are, he is beating you to a pulp, that is not the time to curse your opponent. That's the time to beg for mercy. And I realize that, that the, the metaphor breaks down here a little bit, but it is Job in the ring with God. From the human perspective. And God is pounding him into the ground. And Job's wife says, curse God and die. It seems to me that this is a good time to beg for mercy. It is a good time to surrender. The comforting thing about all this is that 
we can know that God is the one who is holding our lives. I want us to turn for a moment to 1 Peter 4.19. We'll come right back to Job. 1 Peter 4.19. And he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. He is writing to suffering Christians. And he says, don't suffer for doing evil, for committing crimes, but suffer for being a Christian and being true. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. According to God's will. Is it possible to suffer according to God's will? And whatever your theology, we entrust our souls, our lives, to the faithful God. There's nothing more you can do. And it is a comfort to know that our lives are in God's hands, not in the hands of Satan, not in the hands of the devil, not in the hands of evil men and women, who hate you and are out to destroy you. Our lives are in the hands of God and we entrust ourselves to Him while doing good. I realize this is, this is difficult for us. We would rather be comfortable we would rather be free from pain. And yet, he calls us to faithfully live a life of suffering. It's not easy, is it? All right, if Jesus is your shepherd, I want you to put one hand on your heart. Put up the other hand and repeat after me. Where he leads me, I will follow. And what he feeds me, I will swallow. Amen? Come on. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm, I'm preparing them for Rob next week. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, the bulk of the book of Job, chapters 3 through 1, 3 to 31, is a lesson in grieving. Oh, can we... Uh, yeah, we can advance to the next set of slides, please. It's a lesson in grieving. Job gives us a lesson on how to grieve. And Job's friends give us a lesson on how not to be with grieving people. How not to relate to grieving people. Job pours out his grief to God. He pours out his grief to his friends. He is speaking and praying so honestly that it makes his friends very uncomfortable and it makes us very uncomfortable listening in. We don't know how to deal with this stuff. As the church in the West, as Christians, most of us do not know how to grieve well. 
a couple who are close to Carlena and I uh, lost uh, a baby daughter. She had a birth defect, was not expected to make it to full term. She did make it, and then she was not expected to live for very long. Well, she lived for a year, and for a year they held this baby in her arms, and then she died, and they were heartbroken. It's one of the hardest things you can experience. And it took them some years to, uh, to grieve through this and to, again, find enough courage and enough faith, perhaps, to try again for another baby. And so they had a baby boy. And this time, this child is healthy, apparently healthy, until about day nine. And then things start going downhill. And after a night of struggling for his life in the ICU, this boy also died. And they were devastated. And as you can imagine, they had a lot of grieving to do. Well, people... You'll find when you're grieving that people avoid you because they don't know what to say and what to do. You will find when you're grieving that people will say awkward, hurtful things, as well-meaning as they may be. Things like, oh, at least you have two healthy ones. You can be thankful for them. I'm sorry, but that's not very helpful. And... As days turn into weeks, into months, and into years, people start being resentful that you are there among them and still grieving. Because as a church, we don't know how to handle people in grief. And I think we don't know how to be with grieving people because we ourselves do not grieve well. And so... I, I just want to <clears throat> say a couple of things about being with grieving people and living with our own grief. Job was living righteously, and yet he suffered. And his friends gave him all kinds of wisdom. Oh, yes, you are suffering because you must have done something wrong. After all, God blesses the righteous. And wouldn't you be blessed if you were righteous? And, and it goes on and on. And they were giving him this kind of conventional wisdom, which has its place, but not pausing to think that, God, that Job already knew it all and he lived it well. Job was living righteously and yet experiencing suffering. He had bumped up against these great mysteries of life, how the righteous can suffer and how the wicked can prosper. He was encountering the mysteries of life and the mysteries of God. And there he was trying to unravel this, sitting there in his living room, unraveling these mysteries of life, and it was all a mess. And his friends walked into the room and they saw the mess. And they were very uncomfortable. 
And so, of course, they try to package it up into their neat little boxes. But what Job needed was someone to let him be messy. What he needed, one of the best things, one of the most, most important things for you to do, one of the most loving things that you can do when you're around someone who grieves, is to simply let them be who they are. Let them be where they are. And let them be loved. And help them to know that it's okay to hurt. To be where you are and to be loved. Perhaps you don't know what to say. I think we avoid grieving people because we really don't know what to say to them or how to act around them. Well, how about something like this? You know, I really don't know what I can say to you that would be helpful. But I want you to know that I care be praying for you or or perhaps is there anything i can do that would be helpful and and perhaps even to think a little bit oh what if i brought you a meal what if i took your kids and 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 let you have have an afternoon to yourself you know just just think a little bit and offer Or about living with our own grief. Uh, I know there's a lot more to all this than we can cover in the time that we have, but you know, Job offers us a good example of grieving. And and we also have this in David, we have this in, in the Lament Psalms. First of all, Allow yourself, give yourself the permission to be there, to be a mess, and to be loved. What do we do with our emotions? God created you with emotions. And when things happen to us, we will feel things. And what is the best thing that you can do with all your feelings is simply to feel them. Just feel them and let them be. Let them run their course. I have found that when you try to avoid feeling the pain, it comes out in all kinds of strange and unsavory ways in your life. Allow yourself to feel, embrace the pain embrace whatever it is and if it's not there just just allow yourself to be learn to pray as honestly as you can job prayed honestly david prayed honestly and and the psalms are there as the prayer book of israel as the prayer book for us we can pray these prayers after him and learn to grieve There is no way around 
this valley of grief. I, I believe it's very important for us as a church to learn this. But there's no way around the valley. The only way through grief is through it. To walk through it by faith, not needing to feel okay. Because it's okay simply to be a mess and to feel pain. I've observed that people, when they are grieving, can go one of two directions. And some will raise their fists to God, saying, How dare you? And others will raise their fists to God, or sorry, raise their hands to God, and say, I need you. I surrender. I need you. And you know, if you're angry at God and we see a lot of anger in Job and we see a lot of anger in the Psalms, it's okay to be there for a while and it's okay to be there for as long as you need to be. But realizing that what you need is not a raised fist, but raised hands of surrender. God, I need you. I need you. I surrender. And as Job walked through his valley of grief, And as you walk through the valley of grief, you will discover that God is really good. You will discover that you could actually enjoy this God. Job begins, or sorry, as as Job grieves, he encounters God near the end of the book. And he discovers that God is God. That God does not answer, have to answer to him. That God is not to be judged, but to be worshipped. Because he is God. But as he surrendered, he also discovers that God is good. And we, we have Job's prosperity and blessing being restored to him at the end of his life. And as you surrender somewhere along the journey of grief, you'll discover yourself suddenly enjoying God. And if you're in grief, that's my hope for you. If you're not in grief, I pray that you will become a space where people can come and simply be all that they are in their hurt and in their pain and be there with them and love them and incarnate the love of the Father to them. Amen. Father God, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the story of Job. Thank you for your word that has so much to say to us. We pray that we would become a people more committed to loving you and serving you than we are to being comfortable. We pray that we would become a people more committed to being faithful and living well than we are 
to being free from pain. Lord, will you give us the grace? Will you give grace to each one in the congregation here to live well and to live faithfully through the difficulties of life? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.